Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge and welcome to What to Do When You Feel Hopeless About a Client. Five practitioner motivating tips to mobilise therapeutic movement in stuck clients. Now, I was actually sitting in the clinic and the sound of the doorbell hit me like an electric charge. Why had the client come? What was she here for? Was there really any point to this? And was I really helping? And I fought back the tide of reluctance and went to let this client in. And I vowed to shake myself down. Maybe this time it would be different. Maybe this time I'd actually be able to help this client. And she sat and studied the floor as always. And her head sunk, you know, uh, down and, and not really engaging with me at all. Denise, call this client, peered at my carpet as though seeking some kind of thread of hope from the floor. She was firmly stuck on the inside of her experience and me being part of the outside of her experience um, barely registered for her. It's almost as if I wasn't there in some way, or so it seemed. This was our fourth session and I'd had to tone down my natural ebullience because she was so unresponsive. I felt like I'd been trying to light a match underwater. And her first language was not English, but she understood everything that I said and spoke English perfectly. That is, when she actually did speak, but she didn't seem to have any desire to engage with me at all in any of her sessions prior to this. And I was beginning to lose a little bit of um, hope myself, and you have to be very careful about that. But it was worse than that. I was starting to feel hopeless about her. And if I felt like that, then what in the name of lost souls did she feel like? Now, I've never seen anyone who could produce so many tears as Denise did. And they slid silently down her expressionless face and our sessions didn't seem to be going anywhere. I had to encourage her even to wipe away her tears. It was as if she cared nothing about anything. Okay. Now, Denise had been dragged along to see me by her friend. So she hadn't um, had the motivation, not surprisingly, to come to see me of her own accord. She herself felt it was hopeless and pointless and that much was clear. You know, she didn't even want to be there. And I'd hardly gotten any responses to my questions. The little I knew about her had come from her friend over uh, one email. And Denise's friend's uh, electronic message had informed me that Denise was originally from a place called uh, Beau in France and this proved to be significant. Now, in all this time, Denise had not, as far as I was aware, actually looked at me. Okay, our eyes hadn't ever met once during my four or so hours with her. But though she didn't look at me or speak to me, I looked at her and I really wondered about her. Looking at her, she was lithe and slim, but she looked strong physically. And I knew both in France was famous as a climbing destination. So I took a chance. If she wouldn't speak, then I would speak. I would just talk gently to her. And I evoked in really general terms the climbing experience. I spoke evenly and slowly to her. And I said, you know, a climb can sometimes look impossible at first glance. But bit by bit, the way upwards 
can become clearer, even though there seemed to be no way of progressing when you first looked at the rock. And sometimes one way looks like the way to go, but then you may have to go down a little for a while, but purely so that you can go up again another way, a way that works. Now, was it my imagination or had Denise's attention become more focused on my words as I've just began this soliloquy about climbing from my imagination? Some people can daydream a wonderful climb, I said to her, and can even close the eyes and start to relax a little as they become absorbed in this daydream of focused attention and the use of the body in climbing up. I overlapped the senses in my description of climbing and describing how the outside air might warm the skin, how the hands feel when they're strong, finding out the secrets of the rock and so on. And then something wonderful happened. Denise settled back. She closed her eyes. Her face had relaxed and her eyeballs were dancing as though deep in some supreme dream beneath her eyelids. And she was totally listening and totally engaged. And we climbed that rock wall together. And I suggested that there can be a wonderful sensation of almost triumph when you finally reach the top of a difficult climb. And she nodded minimally and unconsciously. And I suggested the landscape looks different when you're way up high, that you see new perspectives. I described how you can see so much in context you just couldn't see before, and how new horizons and possibilities and perspectives appear from this new vantage point. And again, there was a subtle nod of her head, and I noticed that her face looked more relaxed. I talked of how the muscles of the arms and legs can relax and rest after a really intense climb, and how we naturally rest uh, after exertion. And Denise sighed deeply, and I noticed her hands were no longer clenched into tiny balls of tension, and in fact she now looked restful. I had demanded nothing from her. All I'd done was think out loud about what climbing might feel like. I hadn't suggested that she'd ever been climbing in this part of France, or um, asked her anything else, of course, and she wasn't speaking anyway, so I'd done the speaking. And of course, I hadn't just been talking about climbing, okay? that much should be clear. And I later did learn that Denise had been a highly respected climber back in France. Now this session taught me all kinds of things. Firstly, never ever give up on someone. Secondly, when they don't talk, we can talk and we can use metaphor. And thirdly, we need to stay out of our client's destructive trance states. If someone is drowning in a torrent, don't jump in with that person, with no plan. Find a way to keep yourself safe and get them to safety. So there may sometimes be clients that you feel hopeless about. Maybe they've uh, infected you with their hopelessness. Hopelessness as a feeling spreads between people. And this is one of the inherent risks of doing therapy, of spending time with people trapped inside a bubble of seemingly intractable negativity. Okay, we can get pulled into that bubble too if we're not careful. You know, 
these are kind of uh, mood viruses that infect people. Along with infectious pathogens, we all evolve to infect one another with our moods. And you can catch bad moods, just as you can catch colds from those around you, uh, even via social media, okay, as it's been shown uh, in research. Low or high morale can spread, and charisma, the extent to which someone can and does instill or prompt emotional states in other people, can come in negative or positive forms. So some people can be charismatic in a negative sense, okay, and make you feel the way they do in a powerfully negative way. Denise's uh, totally bleak mood, for some reason, had got to me. It pulled me in. I'd also suffered a failure of imagination at that point. You know, I, I just couldn't imagine how she could get better because she seemed so stuck. But I hadn't been trying hard enough. I felt she wouldn't communicate. But of course, she had been communicating. Tears, head shakes and sunken gaze are clear words in the language of defeat. Okay, they are clear communications. And maybe my burgeoning hopelessness about her had in some way started to communicate back to her, uh, you know, as in, this is another person who feels hopeless about me. So that's a, that was a terrible thought that maybe, you know, or perhaps inevitably me starting to feel a little bit hopeless about the therapy had began to communicate to her and made her feel even more hopeless. So if you sometimes feel hopeless about a client, you know, maybe because they don't respond as you feel they should, or because they're simply um, captious and, and con contrary or resistant, then perhaps these ideas can help you stay out of the quagmire of what seems like hopelessness. So tip number one, stop doing what ain't working. You know, Einstein's famously defined uh, d insanity as doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So sometimes we need to try something new. Asking questions hadn't worked. I'd asked Denise questions over and over and she hadn't responded. And yet I, I still carried on with it. I could have been a phantasm on some distant planet as far as she was concerned. But I, I'd just taken a guess intuitively as to what might engage her attention. I had to forget me. I had to rise out of myself and throw my feelings of struggle out of the way. I had to see and think through fresh eyes in order to begin to make therapeutic process with her. So if you're despairing over a client, look at what you've been doing and try something different. And also begin to perhaps listen to the quiet voice of your intuition. If it doesn't take with the client, then nothing's lost. You know, if I'd simply spoken about climbing and she hadn't really responded, didn't really matter because what you were doing before that wasn't working anyway, so it wouldn't matter. Over the years, I've found that whenever I've started to feel hopeless about a client, and it's really a rare event, I have to say, I look at what I've been trying to do and that hasn't worked and stop doing it, and I call to mind Einstein's famous maxima. And I've also learned to do the following. Tip number two, don't overly blame yourself when you don't get results with clients. It's sometimes said that there are no bad clients, only bad therapists. And that might be true, perhaps, but if we're inventive, creative and flexible, we can do some amazing interventions with many or perhaps most clients. But consider this, it might be that the situation and time are all wrong. 
we can do a lot to motivate our clients, even when they don't think they want to change, but perhaps we and they are not a good match. You know, there is such a thing as chemistry of right time, right person, right place. Certainly when, when we're trained in establishing and maintaining rapport and decent and sociable people anyway, hopefully, then most people we work with will be a good match. We'll be able to do something for most people. But sometimes, for whatever reason, the therapeutic chemistry just isn't there. So often when we find ourselves despairing over a client's lack of progress, we're taking it personally. But here's the thing. If you feel there's really no effort or engagement coming from your client, you can do something quite dramatic. Cue tip number three. So tip number three, use negativity positively. One client, Robert, said yes to my no and no to my yes, more than honest disagreement. Uh, this was, I eventually noticed, automatic contrariness. Okay, so if I said up, he said down, you know, automatically. When I breathed in, he breathed out. Well, you know, almost seemed to be that extreme. But basically he was contrary, and this wasn't the same as honest disagreement. You know, he, he was almost obsessively oppositional, and it started getting to me. You know, it seemed more important to him to control the session than to get the actual benefit from the session uh, that he claimed he wanted from therapy to begin with. So everything I said was automatically wrong. Okay, and um, we do occasionally find this with people. I worked with his resistance by encouraging it. You know, this is what therapists are trained to do with resistance. You don't fight against it, you don't resist the resistance, you encourage it because of course it's a force that can be used for therapeutic gain. And that worked quite well, but he was still dragging his feet and insisting that I drag my feet as well. So one day I decided to try a, a different tack. Um, so I said to Robert, you know, I said, uh, Robert, what is this? Is, this? is this your sixth session or thereabouts? And I waited for the inevitable and he said, no, no, this has got to be my seventh session. Okay, so because of course he couldn't agree that it was a sixth session. So I said, okay, well, I've decided that I'm not sure I can help you any further. Maybe I'm just wrong or maybe I'm just the wrong guy. Uh, you might well suit another of any number of other therapists, but I feel we're not getting anywhere. Now, of course, there's no way he could agree with that statement. Um, and I said, you know, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, is there any, anything you can think of that we can constructively work on? Maybe something I've missed. Otherwise, I think we need to call it a day now. And he was thunderstruck. And he then earnestly told me how valuable he was finding our sessions and how much, they'd, how much good they'd done him and how he was feeling happier in his day, to li day life and so forth. Uh, how the, how the, you know, he felt we were making progress. And you know what? From that point on, we did make progress, but it needed that kind of fuel injection to get it going. And I also uh, used his, his uh, automatic contrariness I wasn't really giving up on him, but I didn't want to take his money for no purpose. And I wanted to see whether he really wanted my therapy or not. And his habit of um, contradicting everything I said, um, you know, sort of got him on the therapy uh, track. In this way, we can be open about whether they're really happy to continue with us. And that would have been a harsh approach to take for Denise, but for Robert, it worked beautifully. So different people, different approaches. Okay, 
The principle was an important one. We need to shock someone out of their automaticity. Okay, so tell them that you're not sure you can help them any further and ask if there's anything they can think of that you're not doing. Okay, and often you'll find that they'll, if they're contrary, they'll bat for the other side and come back to it if necessary. We don't want clients to waste their own time and money as well. Okay, positive use of negativity to, uh, to motivate the client can be surprisingly powerful when they and even you had started feeling a bit hopeless about it. Okay, you know, tell them that you're feeling a little bit hopeless and you know, what can they do to you know, sort of uh, make therapy better as, as well as you. It's a two-way thing. But you should also remind yourself regularly of the next point. So tip number four, remember that people are surprising. And to my shame, I had forgotten that people can surprise me. Okay, you know, with Denise I'm talking about. Resources can be hidden below the surface, even when that surface may look like um, arid desert or lifeless uh, iced tundra. You know, cold ground, but there's something happening. You know, growth just, you know, the, the trees and flowers and plants don't just appear miraculously in spring. They appear because something was happening in what seemed like the dead, cold ground. This is exactly the kind of imagery that I used with Denise as well. I talked about how in winter, trees and shrubs appear lifeless, but underneath, even beyond awareness, changes can be happening that will soon start to break free, bringing life back to the world. Now, on the rare occasions I start to feel even a tad hopeless with a client, I remember Denise and how she surprised me and how faithless I'd been to doubt her. And remembering that people can surprise us can help you inhabit fully the next and final tip. So tip number five, by your very being, transmit your positive expectation of your client. I expect my clients to get better and become happier. I sometimes sit down before they arrive, relax and hypnotically see them happier and healthier in the future. I want my expectation of them to influence them and I think it often does. New drugs that were coming onto market were once tested in mere what they call blind trials. Now this meant the patient didn't know whether they were getting the real deal, the real drug or not, but the doctor administering the drug or placebo did know whether it was a drug or placebo. And there's a huge problem with this. It was found that the doctors non-verbally expressed expectation influenced the client's responsiveness to both the drug and the placebo. So if the doctor knew it was really a placebo, then that knowledge would transmit, even though it wasn't stated, to the patient okay, and affect the cure or otherwise. Nowadays, well-conducted drug trials are double-blind, meaning that neither the patient nor the doctor knows whether the patient or trial participant is getting the real drug or the placebo. So the doctor doesn't know and the patient doesn't know, but they had to make it like that. Expectation of the healer matters for the patient and can have a positive or negative impact on the outcome of the, for the patient. Whether that expectation is expressed linguistically or not, it carries over through uh, all kinds of mechanisms of communication. So the expectation of the therapist may be a key factor in the outcome of the therapy and it's worth letting that sink in for a moment. Okay. And you can also self-hypnotically rehearse your client getting better. 
before you see them so that you have a blueprint in your own mind, a template of them being better and getting value from your therapy um, and, and let that template or blueprint guide you into the future, so to speak. Um, what will they look like and sound like and how might they be living their life day to day in their better future? And we need to give our clients a template for health as well, give them a template or a blueprint, an alternative to dysfunction and a blueprint for change. But we also need, as the practitioner, to help our own template as to their future progress. Okay, so really ramp up your own expectation of your clients. At the end of her inner rock climbing experience, Denise was ready and seemed finally happy, in fact, to talk to me. Okay, but it took that experience for her to do that. I connected with her on some deeper level. She looked more relaxed. She marveled at how I'd known that rock climbing and had been so dear to her, and of course I hadn't known, and that she really enjoyed revisiting her passion. And she even felt com compelled in later sessions to get back to actual rock climbing, a passion from her forgotten life, as she called it. And it had made uh, that forgotten life reawaken within her to some extent. So slowly and without tears now, she started to tell me of all her fears and terrors and traumas, and finally her rediscovered hopes. Okay, but it took that change, that connection with her, to make that happen, to free her up to progress. At the end of that fourth session, she transformed herself and the world in general with a beautiful smile that I never thought was possible uh, from her. And for a moment, it cut through the darkness and my perception of her and her potential, and it changed everything for me. Now, this isn't to say that therapy with her was suddenly easy or incredibly straightforward after that. It was long and hard, but we were able to climb the rock together, so to speak, and at last she could see further and better than before. She started to live a healthier and happier life. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Terrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog.